For our sermon this morning, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, I would invite you as well, if you have a bulletin, you can take out uh, the outline. And hopefully that can help you, especially near the end as we draw application uh, to our own lives. Uh, there is a, a chart that I think will be of benefit to you. And if you do not receive the bulletin by email, I just encourage you to sign up at the Welcome Center uh, we're beginning to also email uh, this handout to you so that if you want to follow along there in your device, you can see the handout and have it that way as well. So if you've never done that, I'd encourage you to sign up and you can receive the handout in that way as well. Now, some of you are purists, of course, and you don't need handouts. And uh, I understand that. Of course, we're not forcing you to follow along that way. But if it is a blessing, feel free to do that. You can follow uh, with us throughout the sermon. Well, have you ever wondered if a believer has the freedom to pursue justice when he is wronged in matters of finance or property? Perhaps you have questions if it is ever right for one Christian to sue another person. Early in ministry, I was confronted by two different scenarios that were difficult for me to work through. And they really uh, pushed me to the scriptures to try to figure out what do I believe about Christians and lawsuits. I remember hearing about a church who uh, attempted to sell their church van. So they got the idea of just putting it on their parking lot and selling this van. And and they thought that the process would take a few days, a few weeks, or whatever. Well, the very first day they put the church van out on the property, it sold. And it sold with the agreement that that the, the, the new owner of the van would... Um, would uh, allow for a time where the church could actually remove the, the church's name off of the side of the van. Uh, well, a few days passed along, and then the church hadn't done that yet, and the church started receiving phone calls about their new van driver. Uh, this new van driver, who actually was a new owner of the vehicle, people in the community thought that this was a, just one of the drivers for the church, and he was in the community cursing and swearing at kids, And so the church felt very compelled to get the name of the church van off the side of the van. That's when this new owner said that it would be a huge inconvenience to him. He didn't want to do that, and he didn't want to break uh, up his schedule that way. If, If a situation like that occurred, could a church sue for the opportunity or for the privilege of taking the name off the side of the van? I also remember hearing about a family... Um who was greatly, their lives were greatly impacted through the negligence of a trucking company. A trucking company hadn't properly cared for one of its vehicles, and a piece of a metal mud flap fell off the vehicle, hit the pavement, bounced up into the air, shot into the gas tank of, the, uh, the, of the, this Christian couple and their family. It immediately caused the van to explode into flames. This family actually lost some of their children, and they themselves, the man and the woman, were greatly burned in the scenario. In a scenario like that, if the trucking company wasn't of the mind to reimburse or pay for the damages, the pain and suffering, could a Christian in a scenario like that sue the trucking company to get his rightful position? Perhaps you've experienced some 
situation in which someone trashed your rental property or refused to pay up on a bill that was legitimate, that they owed you, how should you respond? What should we do in scenarios like this? Well, as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we come to one of the most important New Testament texts that helps us understand the way that believers should relate to secular law courts. Now, there are a few disclaimers I want to make with you right at the beginning of our our sermon this morning. First of all, um, this is only one of the relevant texts found in the New Testament about the subject. So we're going to work through this text of Scripture. Near the end, I'll point you in the direction of some others, but this is only one of the texts. So we make that disclaimer. Then we also make the disclaimer that many believers think very differently about certain parts of this subject. Even historically, throughout the history of the church, different believers in different denominations have responded to some of the questions I'm going to pose to you today in very different ways. And so as we work through the text, I will try to be very clear when I believe that Paul is making a command for which Christians must obey. But then also be clear when we get into matters where I'll give you my personal opinion or practice on the subject. I want to read the text of Scripture with you. Uh, Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. With me at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. As we make our way through this text, I believe that Paul unfolds his argument in three phases. The first phase I call the situation at Corinth. This one clearly stated the situation was Christians were suing each other, verses 1 through 3. Now, in order to get into verses 1 through 3, we need to start by considering how this part of chapter 6 fits into the problem section of chapters 5 and 6. If you remember last week and the week, or uh, I'm sorry, two of the last three weeks, right? Last week was Easter. 
We took uh, two weeks to work through chapter 5, and the main problem that Paul deals with in chapter 5 is the sin of immorality. Remember, a man was having an ongoing immoral relationship with his stepmother, and Paul confronts that and deals with that in the assembly. What's interesting to me is right after the text I just read, in verses 12 through 20 of chapter 6, Paul returns to the sin of immorality. Immorality again. Okay, so what you have in chapter 5 is a section about immorality. At the end of chapter 6, a section about immorality as well. So one of the questions we need to ask is, what is this section about lawsuits doing right in between two texts that talk about immorality? I need to tell you that people really struggle trying to figure out why this text is here. Why did Paul write it and compose it and then put it into this section And I need to suggest that there is no consensus on this. As I've read through the commentaries that have been produced in, you know, say the last 50, 100 years or so, there's really no strong consensus on why a lawsuit section in the middle of two sections about immorality. And I want to suggest that the way you come to see how this fits is just simply by looking at the vocabulary. You look at the words that are used. And there are two words that are used in chapter 5 that are used again in chapter 6, which I think will help us know what's going on here. The first word I would draw your attention to is the word greed that's found in chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. If you remember at the end of chapter 5, Paul expands it to saying, not only must you deal with immoral people, you must also deal with people who are idolaters and adulterers and One of the words that he uses is those who are greedy, chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. And Paul will return to that word in chapter 6 at the end of the text we're going to look at today in verses 9 through 11. In a list of 10 sins, Paul talks about greed again. And so he had already prepared us a little bit to deal with this section on Christians and lawsuits and their greediness in insisting on their own rights. But the word that really helps us even more than that, perhaps, is the word judge or judgment. And so in chapter 5, this word is found frequently. Look in your Bible at chapter 5 and verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Paul says, although I'm not with you there in Corinth, I have already decided what you should do, and he uses the word for judgment. Then look a little bit later down in verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Here, two times again, Paul uses a word for judge or judging. And he basically says that the church doesn't have a responsibility to judge outsiders, but if any so-called believer insists on immorality and they're not repentant, the church must issue judgment there. Look at 5.13. 5.13. God judges those outside. You see at the end of that text that It's not as if outsiders get away with it. It's not as if lost people will be able to continue on in sin like this, but their judgment is left to God. So in chapter 5, four times, I see this word for judge or judgment or judging. 
But then if you keep reading in chapter 6, over and over again, six times in the first six verses, you will see the word for judging or to judge. Okay, so if you're an alert reader and you're reading through this, you're going to say, you know what? Paul has a lot to say about judging and judgment in chapters 5 and 6. So it appears to me that the connection here is that when Paul is dealing with one very bad sin in the church, immorality, that's being done in an ongoing fashion and for which there's no repentance, another sin comes to his mind for which the church must also be willing to judge. And that is the sin of greed. It's greed. And so now we look back at verses 1 through 3. We notice that Paul directs the church to deal with those within the assembly that were so greedy, they were willing to jeopardize their relationship with other people within the assembly and perhaps also their relationship to the lost people around them in Corinth. So if neglected, this scandal will hinder the church from impacting the culture around them. And so let's first look at the situation here. It can be summarized in two ways. In verse 1, first, they were going before unsaved judges down in the law courts of Corinth. Actually, what Paul does in verse 1 is he asks a question. Dare any of you go to court against your brother? And he asks it in such a way that it's at least strongly implied that this is actually the case. This is what's happening in Corinth. Perhaps Chloe's people had told Paul about this problem or the three travelers from Corinth, 1 Corinthians 16, that came and brought him a letter. Perhaps they had told him, you know, you've got these believers going down to the law courts in Corinth and they're suing each other for their own gain. I think it'd be helpful for us at this point to, to just take a brief stop and to consider two features of the ancient law system in Roman cities. First of all, I want to suggest that when Paul says in verse 1, go to law, that he is probably referring to something similar to our small claims court or a local municipal court in our country. Of course, there, there could perhaps be some differences. He's in his own setting But what he's describing here are disputes between believers over civil matters. These sort of cases would be tried down in the main square of the city of Corinth, right where two roads intersected in the city on a large platform that ancient Greeks would call the Bema, the Bema platform. There a governor, the governor or proconsul of the city would issue judgment in cases that were civil in nature. You know, things related to finance and property and damages to property or fraud and breaches of contract. Those sort of things would be heard. Uh, Let me give you a few reasons why I think that's what he's talking about when he says go to law. One of the reasons is if you look in your Bible at verse 2, if you look in your Bible at verse 2, he says, or do you not know that saints will judge the world And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? 
That translation, trivial cases, seems to point to things that are less significant. I don't think he's describing major criminal activities in this passage, things like abuse or assault or murder or something like that. But he's describing these lower level civil sort of judgments. They're trivial cases. You look as well in your Bible at verse 3. In 1 Corinthians 6, 3, Paul describes these courts as courts for matters of everyday life. Again, I think that that's pointing to this lower sort of civil court that he's describing in our text. And and then, near the end of the text, in verse 8, when he says, why not rather allow yourself to be defrauded, the word that he uses for defrauded here is often used in situations where someone is ripping off another person, like when it comes to money or finance or something like that. And so with those biblical indications here in the text, perhaps also injecting what one first century writer said, his name was Dio Chrysostom. Dio Chrysostom explained that in the Roman Empire, he said, minor civil matters were left to the control of local courts and could be tried by judges and juries. I want to suggest that what Paul is describing in our text is matters of minor civil disputes between believers. There's one other piece I'd like to add to that, and that is the understanding that most or many of these minor civil courts were actually seen as being thoroughly corrupt. Thoroughly corrupt, perhaps also including the Bema seat down in ancient Corinth. So that same author, Dio Chrysostom, said that there were innumerable lawyers perverting justice in these lower courts. There could perhaps be an allusion to this in the New Testament, in the book of James, in James in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 6. James says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you before judgment seats? I think James is confronting more of a Jewish culture and Jewish tradition, but he's asking the question, don't rich people normally corrupt and buy the verdict in the lower courts? Don't they just keep pulling you before these things? I add to that just a few more testimonies here. Petronius, a first century Roman author, said this. He said, so a lawsuit is nothing more than a public auction. And what this Roman writer was getting at in the mid-50s AD was if you sue someone, you can buy the verdict. Then my favorite testimony comes from Juvenal, who said that in a Roman civil court, a man's word was, was not as important as the size of his strong box. Strong box would be his cash box. You could buy your verdict in these lower courts. So, despite the common practice of the Corinthians, verse 1, Paul does not want the Corinthians to go to these law courts and demand justice. His problem is not that perhaps that the unsaved judges couldn't come to the truth, because all men are created in the image of God, and we can reflect his wisdom 
at times, but more that the Corinthians were neglecting their own ability to judge. And that's the second part of the situation. You go to verses 2 and 3. And the second way I'd summarize the situation is the Corinthians were neglecting their own ability to judge. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Paul's problem with the practice of the Corinthians suing their brothers and sisters in the law courts of Corinth is that it denies their position in Christ. Paul says that saints will judge the world one day. Maybe in reference to the millennial kingdom when when believers will return with Christ and set up and be, be set up as judges on this planet to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. He says, not only will we judge the world in the future, he says, don't you know that we're also going to judge angels? You see that in the text? Like, is that a mysterious statement or what? I mean, when do believers sit in judgment over angelic beings? I pursued that for a while. I went to places like Jude, verse 6, and Revelation 19, verses 14 through 20. And I really came up with the conclusion, we don't really know exactly when believers will sit in judgment over angelic beings or perhaps fallen angelic beings. But Paul says this is true. One day, those who know Jesus Christ will sit in judgment not only over the world, but also over angelic beings. And his argument goes from there, that the Corinthians were failing to allow their future eschatological heritage to influence the way they conduct business in the church. You see, God is preparing you to be reasonable judges in the future where you judge the world and angels. Don't you think you could issue judgments in these sort of trivial cases, these matters of everyday life? You see, for Christians to go before unjust judges in Corinth was to bring shame on the name of Christ. This would be a terrible testimony to lost people in Corinth when they would see a group of believers who are obsessed with acquisition and personal rights. So much so that they're willing to drop the hammer on another believer to get what is due them. So in in verses 1 through 3, the way I describe the situation is this. They were going down to unsaved law courts and they were neglecting their own ability to judge. That leads to the second phase in Paul's argument. You still with me? The second phase I call the solution for Corinth. The solution for Corinth, verses four through eight, is that Christians should pursue other options. Paul gives them two other ways of dealing with this issue, these civil disputes in Corinth. And the first solution is found in verses four through six, First, they should handle this matter internally. You got a blank there in your notes, internally. That's what you fill in there. And look with me at verse four. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. 
Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Here Paul asks why the Corinthians are pursuing these cases. And more specifically, he tells us here that what he's going to be doing in this passage is he's going to be attempting to shame them, to make them ashamed of themselves and their practice. And he does this by asking a series of questions. Uh, One of the interesting things to me is in verses 1 through 6, if you were to look at this, um, it appears that Paul starts out by asking six questions. It's just question after question after question. Uh, One time I remember teaching through a lesson, and I wanted to test the value of asking questions. And so I labored really hard to do this. And I started the class hour off with 50 questions in a row. By about the 30th question, right, maybe before that, people started scratching, like, what in the world? One of the the values of a question is if a question is asked appropriately or properly, it forces you to answer. And so Paul here, in a series of questions about the practice, causes them to really think about what they're doing. In verses 4 through 8, there are two questions that draw my attention. First, he asks, why do you put... No status people on the stand to issue judgment. Why do you take someone who's a lost person and exalt them as a judge over these cases? And then he also asks, is it that there is no one qualified in the church to sit in judgment over these cases? I think that from what Paul says in other places in 1 Corinthians, that that last question is just really a strong criticism of them, but it's a bit of sarcasm. Because in other places, he talks about the heritage that these believers have, have I, I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, their eternal uh, heritage, and the knowledge that they have as believers. I think that question is intended to point to the fact that the, the Corinthians should examine that, yes, indeed, they have many people who could act as judges in this situation. But here, in verses 4 through 6, the first part of the solution is you should handle this matter internally. Don't take it down to the law courts in Corinth if your brother or sister has ripped you off. Instead, you should set up Christian judges. In our world today, there are some Christian litigation companies that are set up just for this purpose, to keep it out of the public court system. It may be possible, and I've heard some cases where um, a group of pastors or church members function as an advisor in an advisory capacity between two brothers who are having a dispute in an assembly. For situations like this where, you know, uh, one believer sold another believer a vehicle and then it dies like a day later. You ever experienced something like that? And so then there's a dispute here, right? Okay, who gets the money and who has to pay for the problem? Well, uh, it may be that a group of believers could help pronounce uh, or advise in the situation to help the situation out. But that leads us to the second solution he gives in verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 7. 
to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. As I understand it, this is Paul's first statement. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Here, the best alternative that Paul gives is just that a believer would be willing to just take the wrong. To borrow words from Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew 5, 39, we should just turn the other cheek. So in verse 8, Paul says that we should suffer wrong, or uh, in a synonymous expression, he says, why not rather be defrauded? I think both of these expressions convey the idea that Christians should rather suffer financial wrong than to insist upon their rights to the detriment of another believer in Jesus Christ. And although this might be difficult for us at times, this shouldn't be impossible for us as New Testament followers of Jesus Christ. Because the New Testament clearly teaches that our Christian life is not all about money, riches, property, and wealth anyway. And I think of the very example of the Apostle Paul that's going to come up just a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul will talk about all the things that he himself, as an apostle, is willing to go without so that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not hindered. One of the things he didn't accept from the churches of Corinth was he wouldn't receive money from them, although he was entitled to it. He wouldn't take money from them because he had a higher pursuit. He didn't want to distract them from his real purpose in Corinth, and that is to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ among them. And so Paul himself is an excellent example throughout the New Testament that You know, the cross changes everything for us as believers. Life is no longer about justice, law, or personal rights. Those sort of things are turned upside down. What is most important for us as New Testament followers of Christ is that Jesus Christ would receive honor and glory from our lives. I think of One of the statements I read this week that came from Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee critiques the modern church with this statement. He says this. He said, Our priorities tend to be warped toward the values of this age rather than of the age to come. And what I'm suggesting is that when placed in a scenario where it seems as if the only option would be to sue another believer in this assembly or the larger church of Christ, there is a better solution. And the better solution is that you would allow yourself to be defrauded, to take the wrong. And Paul's final expression in verse 8, look in your Bible at verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers 
teaches us that by suing another believer in a civil court, both parties lose. You might even win the case, but it's already a loss for you. To have a lawsuit between two believers like this in this sort of matter matters, as verse 7 says, is already a loss for you. For some reason, when I go through this text, I always think of the Old Testament story of Solomon when he's issuing judgment over two women who are both, remember the, remember the story? One baby had died in sleep, and they're, they're both arguing over whose baby was still alive. And so Solomon's counsel was, I got it, let's cut the baby in half, we'll give half to each. When an answer like that, it's, it's obvious there in the Old Testament text, if that actually happened, both women lose. Right, and Paul's point in this text is both believers lose if it gets down to the law courts in Corinth and the judgment is issued there. For many of us, for many of us, this might be an entirely different way of thinking that puts more responsibility on the membership of the church. One of the things I've tried to do here in the eight or nine months I've been here is to talk about healthy membership like a lot. You know, talk about the ways we should be caring for each other and helping each other and the way we should be looking out for each other and praying for each other. I have to admit that when I first started emphasizing that, I didn't think about like this sort of thing. Where we would get involved in each other's lives to help bring resolution in cases like this so that it doesn't damage the testimony of Christ in this city or this community. Puts the responsibility on the membership. We do not often think of the church in this way. And we do not value our Christian brothers and sisters in this way very frequently. You want me to like do what? Take the what? Take the hit? Take the wrong? Be defrauded? And yet, it seems to be Paul's clear testimony advice here. In verses 9 through 11, I'll go quickly through them. Verses 9 through 11, we come finally to what I'm just going to call the salvation in Corinth, where Paul reaffirms God's work in their lives. And let me just read this text with you and make comments as we go through it. Paul says in verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It just take five minutes to walk through this. First of all, what, what's going on in these verses, Right? I remember reading several years ago, one commentator make a statement about these verses that I disagree with. He says, he says this. He, Paul, warns this offender and the church that those who do such things are in danger of forfeiting their eternal inheritance. So you got like this list of like 10 sins that Paul says, you know what, the people who do these sort of things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. This commentator says... That Paul's 
actually threatening the church or he's warning the church that if you, if you insist on greed or thievery or things like that, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. I see this less as a warning as much, though, as a reaffirmation. And that'd be the one word I'd write down. If you want to get verses 9 through 11, I think reaffirmation of God's work in their lives. Instead of being a warning about losing salvation, Paul is simply reaffirming the work that Christ has already performed in their lives. This is not a warning of losing salvation, but it's a call to Christ-like or Christian behavior in this matter of a lawsuit. And I think that he's doing something similar to what he did back in chapter 5 in verse 7. So just look over one column in your Bible in chapter 5 in verse 7. Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. What Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, he's, he's using an analogy of a, a batch of dough. And he's saying to the church, Jesus has already created you as a batch of dough without any leaven in it. So remove, remove this man's influence, this sin, which is functioning like leaven or in other words, what Paul is saying is Jesus Christ already created you as a pure and holy body, so you need to remove this sinner and his influence in your assembly. He says, become what you are. Be what God has made and intended you to be. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, I think that's a point that he's making. He's reminding these pagan, these pagan people, these people who are saved out of paganism of their past, and he's saying, Jesus Christ changed you, so don't continue to be greedy. There's much more that could be said here of this text, but Paul is simply suggestion, su suggesting here that those who are guilty in these court systems, insisting on these sort of things, should be willing to walk away. They've been washed from these sort of things. They've been sanctified and justified. So Paul calls on them to avoid all these egregious sins. There's a list of 10 of them. First Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 11, Paul issues a firm denial of a believer's right to pursue everyday matters down in the law courts at Corinth. Just a bit of bonus coverage here. Let me ask you a leading question and give you a few texts to think about this week. As I said at the very beginning, this is one text of many about Paul's relationship to other people and lawsuit situations. There are other texts that I think would help us because what I don't want you leaving with today is leaving with the idea that just because Paul firmly denies believers suing each other over matters of finance, that that means we must always avoid the law courts. And so the text I want to add to your consideration would be found in the book of Acts. I list them out in your notes, but let me just give them to you and summarize them for you here. Acts 16, verses 35 through 40. What we find in Acts 16 is this is after Paul's beaten in Philippi illegally. That in Acts 16, verses 35 through 40, Paul seeks after justice, and he would not be released 
from the prison in Philippi until the legal authorities came and issued him an apology. So Paul, in some cases, sought after and demanded legal justice when he was criminally assaulted. You could add to this Acts chapter 22, verses 24 through 29, where Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship so that he would not be, discour- he would not be scourged or whipped. He's going to be beaten and whipped, but he says, I'm a Roman citizen. And then Paul felt the freedom in Acts 22 to defend himself against legal charges that were brought against him. You could add as well, Acts chapter 23, and again, this is just for you to read this week, verses 12 through 24, where Paul appealed for governmental protection from people who were going to kill him. I love this text because at the beginning of this text, there were 40 people who take a vow that they're not going to drink anything or eat anything until Paul is dead. So in my Bible, I put in the column next to that, 40 people go hungry and thirsty. Because the oath that they take, that a nephew of Paul finds out about it, and he tells Paul, and Paul sends him to the tribunal, to the governor, to, to let him know, and Paul appeals to his right to, to be protected by Rome. Felt the freedom or right to do that. And then you could write down Acts 25 and verse 11, where Paul appeals to his right to be tried by Caesar in Rome. It's 25 verse 11, he says, I appeal to Caesar. And so what I want to leave you with is this concept that Paul believes that human government has been given by God, or to man by God, for cases like those. So in these Acts passages, and in Romans 13, Paul says that all powers are under God's sovereign control, including human government. And there are places where Paul felt complete and utter freedom to seek after the help, the legal protection, and so on, of those in authority. As we close, there's a chart near the end of your notes I would consider for you to try to fill out this week. This chart is something, it's a grid that I think helps us make application to our own lives. The way this chart works is in the top left quadrant, the question is asked, should you feel the freedom to pursue a case against another believer in civil matters? If I were filling in that blank for you, I would write the word no. And the text that I would use would be 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Going beyond that to the bottom right corner, he talks about criminal offenses. If a criminal, uh, if you're offended uh, by an unbeliever, things like abuse, assault, or murder, should you feel the right or the freedom to go to law and seek help, demand justice? And if I were filling in that blank, Romans 13, the, the Acts passages, I'd write the word yes. Yes. And going just up from there, staying in criminal sort of cases, what about if a believer does something to you criminally? Should you feel the right or the freedom to go and, and find protection or help from government authorities? And I would also write the word yes there, applying Romans 13 and those Acts passages there. But for me, the, very, the, the hardest one is that bottom right corner or bottom left corner. What about civil offenses by an unbeliever? Just personally, my, my personal take here 
is I, I would try to apply the text of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, knowing that this is intended for arguments between believers, and personally, I would never take another person to court in matters of finance and property. But good people really disagree about this. Matter of fact, in my notes, I write the word no and yes in the blanks, and after that one, I put no with a question mark. Because I think good people historically have answered that differently. Paul's point is that we must be willing to sacrifice financial comfort if, if necessary so that we do not damage the cause of Christ. And the ultimate consideration for us men and women, the ultimate consideration must always be the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to work through this passage. Lord, of course, some of the things that Paul says in this text hit us dramatically in our culture today. Lord, so often we are consumed with earthly things. We have set our minds on earthly things, so much so that we demand justice in those matters more than we care about heavenly things. Father, may the things that we say today be heard by this church. May we be willing to sacrifice financial comfort if necessary so that damage is not performed to the cause of Christ. And Father, I want to thank you for examples of this that I've heard about even in our own local assembly. Father, Jesus told us not to be overly concerned with clothing, what we should wear, or food, what we should eat, but to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added unto us. Lord, may we be people who are more concerned with the eternal heritage than we are physical, earthly rights. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.